Welcome to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We're talking about disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. In this episode of the show, renowned early intervention nurse slash complex needs parent Rachel Wright joins Pam Cummings from the Vermont I-Team Early Intervention Project. They cover Wright's journey from medical professional to mother, and specifically what she's learned from being the mother of three sons, one of whom is a child with disabilities and complex needs. What can other parents learn about negotiating the journey through the medical jargon maze? And how can medical professionals be better partners to parents and other family members? Let's listen. Okay. Hi, Rachel. I am Pam Cummings, and I'm the physical therapy consultant and project coordinator of the I-Team Early Intervention Project. We are a project at CDCI. Our role, we're interdisciplinary. There is me and an occupational therapy consultant and a communication consultant and a family support person. We support early intervention teams who are working with children who have the most complex needs. We do that through consultation and also through um, trainings across the state of Vermont. Rachel, I would love to have you introduce yourself and tell us how you came to find yourself on both sides of the bed. I feel like I need to use lots of letters. You're like C, D, C, I, E, but I don't have any letters. I don't don't have as many letters as you. I could could maybe make some up. uh, I have a BSc in nursing. There you go. I've got one. I went to KCL, which is King's College London, um, and did my nursing degree. Um, So, yes, I'm Rachel. I uh, am a qualified nurse and um, very cliche. I met my current husband, a current, like I'm going to get another one. I don't intend to get another one. My my one and only, hopefully, husband. I've known since I was a kid and we got together when we were teenagers Aww. and just to just to finish off the cliche he's a doctor um, of course <laughs> so uh so Tim and I got together when we were in our late teens and uh I did apply for medical school but I wasn't clever enough oh I know. not it's true, true. well no okay I might not have I didn't I'd have to have retaken my A-level several times to get the grades that I required. So I didn't um, get into medical school and I resisted being a nurse, but I I was a sciencey girl. So I went off and did nursing. I did a degree in nursing at King's College London um, and uh, I kind of envisaged Tim and I going off and saving the world, you know, one person at a time. Like, who wouldn't? I'm a good Christian girl, brought up in a Christian household and I just figured I would be another missionary across some other plane. Um, so take down the cliche. I mean, I, you know, I, I imagine myself as Florence Nightingale, uh-huh. um, but also a little bit Lara Croft. You know, oh, I kind yeah. of like ut- utility belt, you know, yeah. so so Something lady with the lamp, but also got some attitude. That's it. what I was going for. Yeah, completely. Actually, I think I mean I I think I'm a perfect hybrid, really. 
Um, so uh, Tim, we actually got married before Tim finished uh, medical school. And then we did a bit of traveling and went to Uganda and did some work there and did some out clinics in the outskirts and and places in Rwanda and then we did some work in New Zealand and then we might have had a little bit of a jolly on the way home and gone to Australia and Thailand and various places um and that was great and then we got back and we decided to be grown-ups so we got back and uh, bought a house uh, got a mortgage we didn't really buy a house let's be honest the bank owns the house for a very long time um and we decided to start a family so uh, got pregnant and it wasn't until my eldest son was born 16 years ago now that suddenly having spent being on one side of the bed I'd worked in A&E I'd worked in elderly care I'd worked in ITU and when I was doing traveling I worked in ICU and I worked in theaters and all sorts of places that I went from one side of the bed where I was breaking the news and telling people what was happening and seeing people's lives change dramatically in what we call A&E and you guys ER, um, that suddenly people were breaking news to me because uh, despite having a normal pregnancy, I mean, is any pregnancy normal? <laughs> having your pregnancy, which is yeah. how it always is. A normal pregnancy. pregnancy. Is it normal to wake up and go out and then vomit in a curb oh. on the way to the supermarket? Oh. I mean, it was normal in that sense. It was normal in that there weren't any problems. But um, I don't know. I still think your body growing at the rate of grass <laughs> is weird um and you know like yeah it was all just very strange but uh we had random nosebleeds with one of my pregnancies oh did you so lovely and, and i was doing direct care and so it'd be like yeah i'll be back in you know 10 15 just, like, sorry if i've just yeah. bled on your carpet can i use your bathroom for maybe 15 minutes then i'll be back and then i'll go home then i'll leave but anyway <laughs> lovely yes. normal normal no yeah. i didn't no nosebleeds but lots of lots of puking i couldn't do the bread aisle oh yeah oh, there was something about bread i couldn't cope with the smell of bread so i'd like walk into a shop and then i'd just be like oh <laughs> no can't no, can't do no, it i'm good i'm coming back i'm going back oh anyway i don't miss being pregnant um but it was all quite normal then uh the boy turned up having the night before i couldn't feel him move and i woke up in the middle of the night stressed that i couldn't feel my baby move but i'd felt him move the day before um and tim and i decided to go to the hospital the next morning if we still couldn't feel him move because it would tim had reminded me of times that i'd complained him kicking you know the baby was kicking my bump and stuff um tim toodled off to work on the morning of my due date um and i called up the midwives and said so i can't feel my baby move and they're like well it's probably all fine but why don't you um come in and we'll get you checked out but have some breakfast first like nothing to worry about they're there i turned up and they strapped a monitor on me and i heard a heartbeat so you know 
first big deep breath. Mm -hmm. Tim rushed up from the ward and um, heard the heartbeat and second big deep breath. Um, But the baby still wasn't moving. I was given this little red button, you know, a little bit sort of Austin Powers, like if I press this, it's going to eject me from my hospital (laughs) bed. Um, But uh, I never had reason to press this red button because the red button was your baby is moving and you can feel a kick but I didn't ever feel the baby move um, and I had a scan an ultrasound scan and they said all the blood sort of you know feel looks like it's all moving around absolutely fine we can't see what the problem is but given we still can't see your baby move let's get that baby out so we went um across to labor ward um, so it'd be too long being a first time mother to try an induction. So sunroof it was. Uh, and we had a cesarean. Cesarean. Sunroof? Is that what you Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's two ways for a baby to come out. And this was the sunroof. The sunroof. Uh, so he. I'm sorry, is the other the trunk? What is the? <laughs> I haven't gone that far okay, to decide right. what like the other one. version, like the exhaust, yeah. maybe. I, I mean, you know, that's not, okay. not, not sure. Uh, maybe that. Maybe that analogy stays with the sunroof. Yeah. Anyway, okay. I, like I guess that. it's a door. It's just the, the other way is the door, the just door. the way it's supposed to be coming okay, in and out. Yeah, okay, the door, that works. Because you wouldn't be in the trunk. Okay, go on. No. Sorry, you Yeah, let's, we could get very tied up in that. So anyway, cesarean okay. section was the way forward. Um, and we, the doctor was like, I'm 90% sure your baby's going to be absolutely fine. But um, we need to get on with this. And we're like, okay, yep, no problem. Into a clinical gown. And then they tell you to like, bend over like you're nine months pregnant and you have to like crunch so that your spine sticks out for the for the spinal block like what 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 is that even it's like i've not been able to see my toes for four months and you want me to stick my spine out and then you see the size of the needle and you're like oh okay i'm doing it i'm doing it there you go yep is it is it is it is it all right can you see please tell me you can see my spine because those needles are massive Yes. Absolutely oh. huge. Anyway, uh, legs fizzing and tingling land on the um, the bed. Uh, the te- you know the the thing gets erected between me and the lower part of my body. Tim stays um, head end. Um, being a doctor and and having done some time in surgery and stuff, he uh, is absolutely fine cutting people open but not his wife, it no, seems. Suddenly it was less, <laughs> it was less okay. Yeah. Um, and so he stayed up uh, by my head and the baby was born and they said, it's a boy. And we're like, yay. And then the baby was taken off and I couldn't hear him cry. And that was genuinely the first time I think that really was the first time I thought, like I thought stuff was going wrong before that, but in a kind of other person way, does that make sense? Like it was, you know, I'm, I'm great at imagining bad things happening. (laughs) I'm, I'm really good at that. 
I can, I have that down to a T. I can imagine all the potential negative things that could occur. Um, and it was only when I didn't hear the crying that I, so that, that, that reality landed in me and in the situation. And Tim went backwards and forwards and um, told me that, you know, the, the theatre was suddenly way more quiet. Everyone was very busy, but there were the chatter and the hum and the kind of busyness was suddenly, I mean, I felt the change in tension very significantly. Um, and Tim said, uh, he's not breathing. I mean, he, he's being resuscitated. Um, oh. And the, and then it, it it all changes. I got to see the top of his head before he was whisked off to um, neonatal intensive care. Um, and Tim got out of his blues and went to try and see him. And I'm obviously being sewn up um, by a poor doctor who's actually beside herself because um, it was her first kind of not great outcome. Um, um, and I remember sitting in recovery and dozing off and being how on earth like waking up with that start how can i how can i go to sleep mm -hmm. how can i be in this situation that i don't know if my son is alive or not and i'm managing to doze off but i was obviously up to my elbows with medication mm -hmm. and actually in the preceding 16 years it is very useful to be able to sleep mm -hmm. anywhere and everywhere because there have been numerous hospital beds and floors and all sorts of places that I have been required to sleep um, whilst he's needing to be looked after. Uh, so he got whisked off. Um, we do have a faith and so a minister turned up and there was lots of praying and texts went out. It was pre-Facebook, you know, the good old days when you had to text people. Um, and then we were given sort of the next day or two we were given the chance that he wouldn't survive the chance that he would be absolutely fine and then this big gray bit in the middle and uh we very firmly landed in the gray but we didn't know that though until for another 10 weeks so he was in hospital for about 12 days amazingly came out without on, not on any medication not um like no assisted feeding he was being breastfed when i had my second child i realized it was a bit rubbish at breastfeeding but i didn't realize that because i'd only ever never breastfed anybody before that you time yeah you were doing and it. and it was it seemed to be working um i'd i'd used a pump i mean that's a whole other thing talk about like being daisy the cow like in the hospital while your baby's in skaboo yes, and you attach this pump to your uh, oh my days wonderful. yes weird That's um wonderful. pumping not wonderful not yeah but and, he was, was he breastfeeding directly or he was drinking so, milk? so when he was first born he had an ng and they gave him fluids and then he had um my expressed milk he only ever had expressed milk when he was in hospital um and he was breastfeeding by the time he left wow mm. i mean that's really good sign right he's managing yeah. the suck swallow absolutely yeah yeah that's so we we left with this um optimism that we were taking our miracle baby home 
You did it. Yes. Yay. Uh, and we came home uh, with our arms full of gifts and balloons and baby and thrust into this whole 24 hour thing. Um, you know, suddenly there's two o'clock twice a day, not just once a day. <laughs> suddenly there's three o'clock, not just in the afternoon. Um, and then there is um, things coming out of all sorts of orifices. There's sunroofs and boots and doors and exhaust, like all. Very forcefully, yes. Exactly. Yes. And you know when you're trying to like not turn the light on too bright so the baby doesn't completely wake up. And then you're like, nah, I'm going to have to turn the light on because I have no idea whatever that was, where it landed, what I need to clean up. Um, yeah. So that was the normal carnage that happens after a newborn baby. And uh, it wasn't until we were going for an MRI scan. He had an MRI scan booked for 10 weeks. His six week check, which is um, routine, was all right. They were like, kind of like the, the pediatric consultant was like, kind of crossed his fingers and maybe he's been lucky because he looked like he was tracking and they looked like he might be smiling uh and the mri i mean i don't want a bit spoiler alert but the fact that we're here talking about this means the mri didn't quite work out as we'd hoped um and we left that appointment clinging to each other having um all of the things that i don't think we even realized we'd anticipated you know it isn't until something is in jeopardy or something is no longer something that can be assumed that you realize that was an expectation in your life an expectation that was going to happen so first steps first words first school like all this stuff suddenly kind of wafted <laughs> into somewhere else mm -hmm because we um, were no longer able to assume because they said he had severe and complex brain damage. It, they kind of used words like all, all parts of his brain and the grey matter and the white matter and severe and all that kind of stuff. And in the middle of that appointment, I remember just thinking, how did I let this happen? Oh. Like, how did How did I carry on? doing all the things in my day when this happening and this major um moment that was going to take us so off script on what we had predicted you know up until that point we were on point for the narrative <laughs> and then so suddenly the narrative were, when you were going into the mri appointment or the results appointment mm -hmm. did you were you like it's fine. This is going to validate that it's fine. Or did you have a gut that maybe it's not going to be quite fine or just where was your head at? So the gut moment, the kind of stone in your stomach that says mm, happened about uh, 10 days, maybe two weeks before the appointment when um, it'd been after the six week scan and I'd noticed a crease on Sam's head um, the bony and and his seam in his head and I 
um, measure, I got the measuring tape out and measured it and realised the nurse at his six-week check had in, inaccurately measured his head circumference. Oh. So they had put his head circumference down as being on track. And when I measured it, it was not on track. Yeah. He was born with a normal head circumference. And then um, by six weeks, well, now this was eight weeks, it had tailed off and it was like down to 20 then zero kind of type mm -hmm. centile so, you so were that like... was mm -hmm. so tim and i had and tim's a gp so you know he was like i don't think this is very good but maybe it's okay mm -hmm. kind of cling um and to, he seems okay he's doing all the things we would expect him to do yeah i mean again with hindsight he was floppy <laughs> He didn't, he didn't hold the way my other babies did. Um, but that early that it wasn't, early. it wasn't ever going to be something that we we're really sure of. Mm -hmm. So by 10 weeks, we went in for the MRI and I was, and we were both worried. And we kind of said to the consultant, um, the registrar that came and spoke to us um, to kind of clock us in for the MRI, cause he's going to have to have a sedative for the MRI. Um, she, we were like, and they're like, has everything been fine? We're like, yeah, he's feeding, he's putting on weight, da, 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 da. The only thing is maybe his head circumference. And in the hope that she'd be like, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about that. And actually she just did not do that at all. She went, oh, oh exactly that. Yeah. Oh, hmm. Okay, thanks for that information. I'll just scribble yeah. that down and yeah, put a big friend. underline on it. Exactly. <laughs> I'll just get my highlighter out yeah. and put a big asterisk next to that thing. It's like, oh. yeah. yeah, so that was, and I remember, I remember so clearly sitting on the plastic red chairs outside the MRI scan. Um, feeling like these people were inside the scanning room. It's like, it's like sitting, I mean, you know, I've never been, uh, but I imagine it's like someone reading your tarot cards or somebody oh. like getting this crystal ball out because yeah. they were in there with getting information that was going to tell me what my future was. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and I just felt I should have a more comfortable chair. <laughs> <laughs> This you know, if this is going to be one of the most significant moments in my life, I ought to have a better chair and there shouldn't be people trying to take out my toes with wheelchairs and trolleys zooming past. Like Give me some space, more comfortable chair, and maybe strap me down a little bit. I might need to be I just, I just feel like this moment should be more... Um, but that's not when we were told the the, the uh that's when you're waiting radiographer was yeah she came out and she was like uh so the doctor will bring you through and give you the results in a while go back up to the ward feed your baby da, da, da. and i just shot him a glance and i said that's not good if you it just... was some if she had any because i know that if i was talking to somebody and i was able to give them oh, this is gonna be okay I would have given them a, it's all oh, right. The doctor will be seeing you, but it all you're looks good. good. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're good, exactly. Uh, but there was no you're good uh, indication. So I think I knew at that 
and and Tim was like, let's just wait. And one of the things he had said to me, I don't exactly know when, but he was like, the baby we're taking into this appointment is the same baby as we're taking out. I was going to ask you that. Did he seem different before and after? Because I know that that is something other families deal with. Like they, even when they get a diagnosis at older ages, they've had this child for three years and now they get a name for what it is. Mm -hmm. And it's the same baby. It's the same kid, right? But you, your perception is different now, right? Definitely it's me that changes. Mm -hmm. Definitely it's me that changes. Whether... And I guess, I, I guess it's not surprising. It's like that sort of scales before your eyes. That is that, that everything in the world looks different. Um, and I, I write about it in my book, um, The Skies of Munda. I write about the difference between that journey there. So we'd, Tim and I both trained in London and the appointment was in London. We'd got the train. And so there was lots of familiarity about the stations and the stops and whatever else, but that journey home everything looked different mm, it was it was so similar do you know what i mean there was something so um normal and comforting about it being familiar because we knew it and we'd been there but suddenly it all looked different it all you looked at steps differently you looked at people's expectations differently you looked at um he just looked at everything differently and mm. and that you know we actually left the hospital and my closest friend at the time was having a baby that day and so we actually went and visited her she'd oh. had a cesarean that day so we actually turned up to the hospital and they obviously knew that we'd gone for this appointment and so we were at the hospital saying yeah it's not good news whilst being introduced to her baby yeah so that was a paradox um and a half and that was a few days before that was a few days before christmas that was the 20th of december um so that changed that christmas dramatically um but i guess the thing that happened there was we just we went off script we went in a completely different direction um and i the first thing that I did, I think, at that point was I realized it was too hard to be disappointed by what didn't then happen. And I had to come from a place of not expecting anything to happen. Oh, interesting. But in a, not in a so Tim's Tim's granddad used to say, expect the worst and plan for the best or something like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> kind of, do you mean hope for the best? Yeah. Plan for the so worst. Like, Let's make sure that, you know, we're leaving room for good things to happen. Yes. But let's be we're, honest. We've it's got not. our backpack. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But and possibly go wrong. Yeah. And I think I think I to protect my own heart from the perpetual disappointment, I kind of had to strip back to this is where we are and how do we move from here? I don't know that I did that very well, but that's what I was aiming for mm. because I couldn't, I couldn't be like, oh, he's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that he's going to be able to step or walk or do this. Oh no, he's not. Oh, I'm hoping that he can see and did it. Oh, he's not. Oh, I'm hoping that he can 
but actually that's that that is definitely what it felt like those first couple of years i talk again in the book i talk about this just feeling like you're in the ring and there that every time you get yourself up within those first three or four years of diagnosis it's not just one thing back down always the next thing and another sucker punch and another thing that gets you on the canvas and it's there is a repeated um you fall down a rabbit warren of disability diagnosis like this it's just feels endless mm-hmm. those first more yeah. piled another, on. another person that you need to meet another appointment that you need to do another mm-hmm. therapy you need to consider another problem that could be on the horizon and now there's it, 10 people in the room now there's 15 yeah. people, people right I, I i do get that um i we've heard that from families sometimes the next diagnosis is just like another diagnosis it's just yeah. too much like yeah. we, well, we've got this we can't have that too even if it's associated or whatever mm-hmm. in my mind it all goes together but no it one more thing it just I, I do see that as a you cannot uh, add another thing to my list my son's list of stuff at the stop at the top of the letters yeah. can we oh. can we peek at four Mm-hmm. And then can you like appendix it? <laughs> so I, just, I, just, I yeah. just don't need any more added to that mm-hmm. list. Um, but it feels and everybody gives you those diagnoses because they think they're helpful because they're trying to give you information and information is power and it's it's how we, you know, help help and support people, but it it is it is ex- emotionally exhausting recalibrating yourself to this next thing I, I remember saying to Tim I just wish they'd tell me everything like I just want to know okay. all of it here and now just tell me it'll be awful and then I'll get up and we'll get on with it but uh with hindsight maybe that wasn't be such a great idea either <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't have got up if yeah. someone had. Um, but I do remember um, some of those appointments where doctors told us the next thing, like you're, you know, at one point a doctor says, hopefully they'll stand, um, your son will stand, but he probably won't walk functionally. That was way over um, that, like, that he's so far from that being a thing but at the time that felt like a loss at the time that felt ah oh, that's something I had I hoped to know that yet oh, yeah. yeah well I did want to know that I was actually really annoyed that when I spoke to the physio my local physio about it she's like yeah yeah I thought that I'm like uh why didn't you tell me yeah um I was actually really cross that somebody who I thought I was close to profession that I was working with we were focused on helping my son had information that I didn't have Mm. I didn't like that so Mm. I wanted to know um but it was it's it's, yeah just always tricky balancing the information anyways at this appointment and I remember sitting in the waiting room and there being all these older children who were very obviously severely disabled and had really complex needs and they were making noises and dribbling and had specialist chairs and neckerchiefs and suction things and all this stuff. And I just looked at this baby in front of me that was six months old and yeah, he wouldn't look me in the eyes and yeah, he wasn't picking things up and putting them in his mouth. 
but he was just my baby and I could not, I genuinely could not see my life with him as a 13 year old. Mm-hmm. I couldn't picture it. I couldn't. And maybe actually what I couldn't imagine was not so much him because those children were in front of me and I'm a nurse and I know what those, you know, what children with really complex needs looks like. What I couldn't imagine was myself mm-hmm. and I couldn't imagine my life within that story, mm-hmm. within his life. And I think that was what I couldn't, um, and I couldn't really articulate and what the the impact that had was I stopped being able to dream or imagine future mm-hmm. at all at all yeah yeah, yeah. Because, because I couldn't think oh when he's five then we'll be doing this or that I just I just stopped being able to see like I said him and therefore me mm-hmm. um I met a family once and the child was young and not diagnosed yet, but they knew there was something they hadn't gotten the diagnosis and um, they, they really enjoyed the traditions of Halloween and Christmas. And the, the, one of the parents said, um, well, now those are ruined. Like, like the child has basically ruined these because the child's not going to be able to do the things we would have expected them to, you know, and it was really interesting, the focus on that, but that was the vision visualization. So what what happens when you have a child, you imagine Christmas and what Christmas is like with Mm -hmm. this child. Right. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. And it's, it, it does really boil down to, I think it boils down to what we think, um, are the parts of life that we most treasure and enjoy. So I remember th- when uh, my son was had his barium swallow and again, another corridor with another cheap rubbish seat with trolley zooming oh, past my feet. Right? <laughs> Someone decides to tell me never to feed my son again. Mm. Um, and, and I, I realized that the thing that I came down to weeks after that was my, the loss that I felt was much more about what I thought. What's a typical meal look like in your house? What, what does it look like with your children? What does a beach days look like? They're oh. an ice cream. What does grandma coming to visit look like? A curly whirly. What does, as in a chocolate bar with toffee in the middle, what does um, Christmas look like? Christmas dinner. What does birthdays look like? Birthday cake. I'm not saying my whole world revolves around food, but it does. <laughs> but it does. I taste and smell and savor um, the seasons and festivities and things through food (laughs) so the idea of him not experiencing that stuff my heartbreak and loss over that was so much more tied up with my perception of what was important in life rather than what he actually enjoyed or savored or appreciated because he actually found eating quite stressful 
unsurprisingly because it was going into his lungs um <laughs> do you know what I mean it wasn't it wasn't funnily enough yeah. it wasn't like he, he didn't he didn't see food coming because of the visual impairment he he would eat or whatever but it wasn't it didn't give him the same jaw that a tub of ice cream gives me <laughs> he didn't have the associations with it right exactly so so when and so I guess that's the same for the parent that you're talking about the things that are are our markers in life and I think do you know what I think this is one of the things that why parents like me get so obsessed with things like talking and walking all parents but go on <laughs> because well but but it's parents like me in that when you know your child's going to walk and talk then that's just a thing isn't it there's no there's no baggage along with that but as soon as your child has um complex needs or has a disability then are they going to need a wheelchair like that, that it seems like a, a marker doesn't it it feels like a thing mm -hmm. are they gonna are they gonna talk mm -hmm. and i guess we could say well that's that's understandable because they're there are means of getting around and our means of communicating but i feel like you're not saying to people you know is my son going to be able to get around that's not the question is it exactly. is my son going to be able to express his or needs and his desires that's not the question it's mm -hmm. something to do with words and it's something to do with steps mm -hmm. and again i think that's to do with the baggage that we bring along that is the magic of those first words, the magic of those first those steps. First steps. It's in every Hallmark commercial, right? It um, is. Yeah, I've never had a parent say, "I want my child to be mo to have mobility and communication." They say exactly. That is what yeah. parents want. And then mobility and communication. The fact that it's possible. Mm -hmm. it, you know, can we give them ways to access those things that becomes very exciting when it's uh, understood that those are there are other ways to be able to be mobile and to communicate but walking and talking still is the thing right so i think the the walking and talking thing the transition from from one side of the bed for me to the other was um I guess there was another transition after that. So there was landing in the place of, of my son having a disability. And then there's landing in the place of, which I'm still working on. I'm not going to say I've got both feet on the ground on this one. Um, landing in the place where exactly what you said, it isn't necessarily about the walking and the talking. It's about breaking down even more what the essence of life and enjoyment is. And it isn't. Oh, that was my phone. Or was that your phone? No, that's you. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry. Oh, uh, if I if I knew where it was, then I would just <laughs> stop it from doing. But I can't see it. Oh, there it is. Here we go. Let's put it on silent. Um, breaking down the essence of life in a way that um, it isn't about the steps and the words. It's about the moving and the communicating. Um, but there is. I definitely think there is a process for us parents where we have to work through that emotionally there. yeah i just I, it, I don't think anyone um can rush that mm -hmm. we'll all do it in different ways and different things there'll be certain things that are more meaningful or more difficult because of our own the the parts of our life that are 
important to us that we fear our sons and daughters are not suddenly able to do. I think that the other part of it is joy, right? Like finding joy in life. And what I think brings me joy, mm -hmm. and it, it might not even be what you know, any of my children, right? Any of them. Thinking, <laughs> no. right, who knows? They that's may not that's just a, that's a parenting is. fail that we all do, isn't it? it is. We just assume. Must, that. Yeah, exactly. You You'll be really happy if you I get love. really good grades mm -hmm. and get a this kind of job that I think is really good, Pretty even fun. though they're like, no, I'll be really happy if you let me go on the Xbox for an extra three hours. <laughs> that's where my joy is. Are you Broadway. sure? I love sure you don't want to yeah. I'm going to bring you the Broadway all along your and You will love it. Love it. You will love it. And then, huh, <laughs> funny, maybe not so much, right? But anyway, but joy. I mean, communication and mobility is very important, obviously, but but joy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, there's a lot of negative experiences that have to happen when you have medical diagnoses and mm -hmm. to make sure that there's pleasurable things that happen too, positive experiences and honing in with your child on what that is yeah. so that you can help be part of it, provide it, be part of it, whatever. Yeah. And you keep, and you keep coming back to ensuring that those, those other things are part and parcel of all of your world. I think, um, that's something that both practitioners and parents can get lost into. Like I say, you fall down this rabbit warren of diagnoses and therapies and everything else. And it's so easy to get sucked into that world and miss the joy, mm -hmm. miss the simple, powerful, um, authentic, meaningful aspects of life that that are just drowned out with the noise of medical jargon for what do you mean and and uh schedules essentially um this is an aside but have you seen the video including samuel do you know what no. That is? oh no. i'll send you a link okay um, I'll, well, I'll, I'll show you. I'll share some information with you later about that. Okay, uh, cool. I think you would really like it. It's about inclusion for uh, this uh, filmmaker. It's his, it's his son. But, and so he decides to make a documentary film about how to the navigating how to have him be included in school. But what that what may, reminded me of it is his brother, the the relationship between the brothers, mm. and there's a lot of joy there. And the brother is the one who knows how to get the joy from mm -hmm. right. The two of them have such a great relationship. But um, I'll share it with you. He's a great uh, Dan Habib. He's a great um, cool. documentary filmmaker. He's done some cool things. Okay, you know one thing that you said which makes me. Um, I know that a lot of the work that you do is about bringing parents and providers together to work together mm -hmm. better. Um, and we're about to have host a training with you doing just that. But um, when you talked about the physio who said, oh, I knew that, uh, was holding information or not even holding it, but had didn't feel like it was maybe the right time to bring it mm -hmm. up or wasn't the person who could bring it up. But tell me more about that. Like, how could that have gone better for you? I think it's really tricky because I reckon that I could probably have a similar story where she told me that information and I was peed off with that. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that there is a fail safe way of treading this 
minefield mm. of complexity of emotions and outcomes and reality that we weren't expecting and we hadn't planned for and were not equipped for mm-hmm. so i think we're really too late well right? well i think the, the the thing that i come back to within my training um again and again from both sides it being about context and intent mm-hmm. so if you have developed a trusting relationship with somebody, if you're seeing them day in and day out, if you um, are in that place and you don't share something that is very meaningful and significant, then you can't be surprised when that is detrimental to that that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think, that people who see me once or twice, those those consultants in any, those people in the locums in like um, kind of the, the doctors who see us once in a, in a an appointment and not going to see them again are more likely to go, yeah, well, that's that. And that's going to, you know, that's going to be terrible for you. Never mind. Here you go. There's a prescription off you. Yeah. Lovely. Um, and are quite happy. Quite happy might not be the word, but are more likely to give the bad perceived bad news. The people who we see that week in and week out, who we build up relationships with, who we know that we're going to be in our lives for years to come, are more hesitant to have those hard conversations. And I understand why, because they're hard conversations and you don't want to ruin relationships, but actually that vulnerability that um clash of humanity rather than schedules and appointments and roles and tasks is where things get real and um it is so much nicer for somebody that you have trusted to sit with you and say you know from the stuff that I've read and from previous people, this is what I'm thinking. And I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting your child into being the same as everybody else, but I just want you to know that this is what I'm thinking. And we're working on this and this, because this is what we're hoping for. And this is what we're working towards. And I want to be pointing to the positive, but I, I don't feel right knowing this without you also know this because if i have that is my alarm telling me to do my son's meds so i'll turn that off because somebody else is going to do that um uh so i think i think the come the, the issue comes back to sharing where we're really at and if if i guess it feels like if that person is withholding information and not really being real and true then you start questioning how much of what i think is a as a is a professional relationship actually tr- real and true like mm-hmm. do you really like me or are no. you just are you just putting on this role because no. you're my son's physiotherapist like you're how much of stuff then maybe you're holding that too exactly um, are you, mm-hmm. is this just all a game mm-hmm. or a job um and 
that's tricky when as a parent you are so vulnerable and so dependent on other people so i think actually the people who i would love to be able to have more of those difficult conversations are those people who are in people's lives for longer mm-hmm. and you and develop those mm-hmm. and knowing know. that you can weather the storm because it will be like it's going to be hard like that doesn't make it a nicer the, the, the news is still the news mm-hmm. it's still not going to necessarily land somewhere that's uncomfortable but you are suddenly in that place with somebody who isn't shooing you out the door after 15 minutes but is going to come back next week and be like how are you after that conversation that was really tricky mm-hmm. how do you do you have more questions now that you've thought about it for a week yeah i think when i was doing more direct care direct mm-hmm. in- in people's homes doing the direct physical therapy, I I thought about that a lot. I knew that I came with all sorts of information. Mm-hmm. And as I got to know a family and a child, I was I knew stuff. I, I had some very educated guesses about what the future, you know, what things, how things might roll mm-hmm. out. Um mm-hmm. and and I always wanted to make sure I came at it from a strong relationship. So it was definitely harder if I didn't have a strong relationship. Yeah. Because then who am I? Who am I in this le- in this family's life to come and give them some bad and bad news or whatever? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I also felt really strongly, and this is something I tried to teach other providers and other like when I had students and things like I- I'm the physio, right? If I'm not going to talk about this who is like there's (laughs) someone else who's in the house who knows this information about these stairs up to the bedroom right like we need to start talking and it's expensive Mm. to change the bedroom so I have to start now I can't worry I mean I can worry but I can't not bring it up because I think the family can't handle it or can't um is going to kick me out or, Mm -hmm. um, what I don't, you know, like they, or, you know, that this is going to take years for them to change the way this house is. And they don't even know that they have to do it right now. How can they even start planning if they don't Mm -hmm. even know? Right. So I felt a lot like it's my, this is my job. I think this is why the 24 hour postural care speaks Mm -hmm. to me so much. Like I have to tell people about this. They yeah. don't know. I barely knew a couple of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I am in a role that allows me to have these conversations. They're yeah. not easy, but if we can't not, like who you can't not ever, you know, and like you said, if you wait too long, oh well. But like, why didn't you why didn't you tell me two years ago? Two years ago. Like, why did I just redecorated I that just staircase? Redecorated. Why did you I just right. put a brand new wardrobe in that bedroom upstairs that's not gonna fit downstairs? I mean, it's just yeah. I do think that's interesting. But again, I think you're right. It takes relationship building and trust to be able to be someone who can say that. The other thing that I think about with this one thing that I, in my career that came about, which I didn't have when I first started was the gross motor classification system. Mm -hmm. And um, I can, that is, I know, you know what it is, but it's a way to classify gross motor abilities in children, primarily with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. um, and scale from one to five, but, and there is some um, predictive value to it Mm -hmm. that there has been longitudinal studies that if you are at one level, when you're about two, then you are likely going to stay at that level. Things will change for you. You'll grow and change, but the description of those levels stays. 
I wish I had that when I was a new therapist. I mean, the, that that is a concrete black and white way to say, I've got some evidence and here's what I know about this diagnosis. Um, that, that helped me a lot. It just felt like it gave me a little more. It's not just me saying, I've seen a lot of kids like this and here's what I think, right? This <laughs> yeah. is what I think is going to happen, right? But It's um, bigger than that, yeah. I think that's true. And I think, I think uh, there's something about when you are talking about hard things i talk about this in the training and stuff when you talk about hard things it is easier when you start talking about bones and muscles and bodies and not about jimmy or uh, you know penelope or right. whatever oh, like no, when you're hard. not talking when we can take out some of the um emotional baggage that comes in and say, so when when uh, a tr somebody's trunk is really hypotonic, you know, is really floppy and sloppy, you know, then they're going to need support in this way. And that support is something that they need, not just when they're in their chair, but then when they're um, in their bed or when they're, you know, the whole way through the day and night in the same way that gravity, funnily enough, doesn't take a hiatus between the hours of 10 o'clock at night and nine o'clock in the morning um neither does um my your child's patterns or whatever else so um and that's i've done a couple of um animations talking about you know things because i think it's just it's also it's youtube and you can watch it and then you can you know it. come across with questions or whatever but it just takes a little bit of the um the emotions of it so that then then the connection you have the practitioner can be with when you're talking about your child it can be about the specifics rather than this general this whatever might... let's get the let's have this general stuff um evidenced and you know talked about in more um maybe more black and white concrete type terms although let's be honest nothing's a given no matter like medicine is still you know half right. made up <laughs> we don't actually know um but let's let's keep the or let's keep the connection authentic mm -hmm. and let's keep um the relationship intact um and i think it's but i think it is possible to um to think about our language and our communication in a way um that we can have a difficult relationship and still have the opportunity to say hard things if we um we i mean we have to can only do our best some people are still unreasonable actually yeah. just because just because i have a child with a disability and just because you're a clinical therapist does not mean that we've both had a personality transplant and suddenly <laughs> and suddenly we're gonna get on beautifully and we are both you know i'm you know like saint obviously yeah. and you're obviously you know your flow the yeah. florence nightingale the yeah. angelic kind of fix it all exactly yeah. you're gonna wasp in there wasp i don't know what that is it's like a whisk <laughs> and a something else i don't know what you were doing um <laughs> but yeah you're gonna whisking you're gonna yeah. swoop in and make it all fantastic mm -hmm. really um but no we're still That's just like people your because you're the uh, saint right yeah, I'm absolutely while i fix everything yeah yeah, yeah you'll fix it all and i'll just diligently quietly martyr my own life for the sake <laughs> of my children 
because that's what mothers do that is what mothers do all right we are going to run out of time i can't believe it and i would love you have given some good advice about practitioner uh, providers and families working together i love that idea of working from starting with like bones more generally and or specific to bones and muscles and this is what we know mm -hmm. about this mm -hmm. diagnosis and then how does that impact you know when we're talking about jimmy what does that mean what yeah. other advice do you have for practitioners and families to work together better okay so whistle stop because we have just rambled on endlessly so whistle stop to providers i think i would try to come back to you're a very small part of a very big picture there is um a lot of life going on that you don't see there is a lot of emotion going on that you um i will not bear witness to but don't ever assume that the one thing you've asked them to do is the most important thing you've asked them to do <laughs> so um there is always more going on than you can think um, and that you can see um and i guess back to sort of may angelou and and what she says around how you make someone feel lasts longer than the words that you say the details of your conversations will get lost with time but the way in which you communicate with people and how they are left feeling that they've been heard that they um, have connected with you, that you're on their side, that you're cheering them on, that you're passionate about their child. Those, the essence of those things will supersede any of the other jargon that mm. you end up throwing in their way. Mm. And I think if we can step past our professionalism into that humanity, um that's where great things happen when we are two people who are being human and real that's when we get beyond our skills and that's where the magic happens where we can actually create something um that is profound and and really changes people's lives from both sides mm. of the of the sort of relationship from a family point of view okay this is the advice i continue to give myself Please don't think I cannot. I am just as um, lost as the next parent. I'm just as trying hard as the next parent. Um, these are not things I have sussed, but I would say step into your own story. Not the one you expected. Um, it's important to grieve and recognize and um, put framing around what you thought life was going to look like and actually what it is because it's only when we step into our own story that we can really um move on that's a Brené Brown mm -hmm. I don't pretend that I that. <laughs> no you could have though <laughs> I could I could have wang that one I could have pretended no um find your people whether that's in person online I'm very diligent and careful about making sure that I have people within and beyond the disability world and um, that's really important for me ask for 
help. <laughs> it's a tough one for a lot of people. Yes, it is. But that comes from some weird fallacy that actual when you talked about joy earlier, we have this weird gauge that joy comes from independence. Uh -huh. We have this weird and maybe that's where the steps and the words come from, too. We have this weird idea that joy and and power and success comes from doing things on your own okay. and without any help from anybody else and it is nonsense <laughs> see what i did there good job <laughs> nonsense nonsense um because this is our one and only precious life and i i so it's my children's one and only precious life and it's my one and only precious life so i am gonna ask for help because i think that makes their life better i think it makes my life better um and i also want all of my children not just my child with really complex needs i've got two other boys as well i want them to see that when they're grown-ups they deserve a life that is full of fun and joy and work and you know play and all those other things and so i if i want that for them i need to mirror that in my own life i and love so that. martyring myself for my children is not something i want them to do I'm so it's not do. something i'm not something i'm going to model mm -hmm. um i want them to think being a grown-up isn't hallmarked by martyrdom but rather generosity for each other and for myself. So I love that for help. so much. You've been listening to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We've been talking and listening to experiences with disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. The music for our show is by Soul June, an audio library release. This show is a production of the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. You can find out more about the center by visiting go.uvm.edu slash cdci. Thanks for listening.